group of more than 100 Texas faith leaders met recently at the southern border to hold a two-day prayer vigil for migrants journeying to the United States. The interfaith leaders crossed the Gateway International Bridge that connects Brownsville and Mapamodos to speak with asylum seekers and hear from legal and policy experts about the growing crisis there. Michael Seifert was asked to speak about life on the border. The Brownsville native and former Catholic priest gave his presentation at the First Presbyterian Church in McAllen where Rio Grande Guardian editor Steve Taylor was there. I'm Mike Seifert. I live in Brownsville. I've lived in the Valley for almost 30 years. Um, and it's a, it's a privileged place. Thank you for being here. I, I have a, kind of a, it's a little presentation. It's impossible to cover all of it. Um, but I think we can talk. I hope to present some clear things to keep you thinking and talking about this. We got 2,400 and something calls last June and July. Because of the baby tape, which you should remember, it came out, they released the tape of children who had been separated from their parents. So our, our office is down here, and we're, we were a staff of two. We're getting these calls all the time, all the time, all the time. People basically saying, we want to do something, tell us what to do. The best response was by a colleague from another network who said, I'm going to tell you what you can do. Tell us what you can do. It sounded sarcastic, it may be me, but I think she was right on point. This is such a big thing that's going on. We don't have the answer. We live here, we know some things, and we, we, we certainly will facilitate that. I did my theology at Catholic University, and Carl Rahner was the big person that we studied under. And I was always struck by his notion of the transcendental love of God being made categorically present in Jesus of Nazareth. I thought that's, that's a... That's a nice way to think about that. You know, this big, big thing become very, very specific. And then I came to the border and found that specificity almost every single day of my life. Um, so it's, a, it's an incredible place to be. It's a, it's a lovely place to be. Um, it's also a challenging place. This is Sebastian. I can put his picture up here because this is from six years ago. I was asked to visit with him in one of the Southwest Key shelters. Okay, so yes, we're playing blackjack because he's 13 years old, he's a traumatized kid, and you know, you talk to him, you play cards. You don't want to win, but the only game he knew was completely lucky. So I said, I'm going to teach you an American game. And it's blackjack, and I could cheat and lose. And then we talked, we became friends. He was 12. He had come up from Honduras with his two brothers, one who was 14 and the other who was 16. They made it to their, their mother, I'm sorry, the father had been murdered two years before. They had a bakery or something and they, wouldn't, they couldn't pay the bribe to keep the gang away from them. So they shot the guy, threatened the mother to pay up or they would shoot her and she couldn't. So they shot her but they missed. They wounded her in the legs but she took off and ended up in Rockport. So... After she got some money together working as a maid, the, two brother, the three brothers came up. They got to Reynosa. They got kidnapped a second time. And these guys took the 14-year-old, strapped him to a table, and beat him to death with a baseball bat. They then took the body to a clinic and at gunpoint forced them to take x-rays and then give them the x-rays on a disc because they were going to send them to the mother so they could say, you really do need to send us $5,000 you poor woman who's a maid making $100 a week, or we'll do this to your other two sons. And then they came back to the place where the kids were, they got drunk, the boys escaped, crossed the river, and then we became friends. He reunited with his mother some months after this, he ends up in Rockport, 
And then he calls me, or the mother, you're supposed to call these kids? I'm like, I'm not going to call a 12 year old. Hey, it's Mike, how are you doing? You know, I'll talk to the mom, though, and say, how's it going? And the mom said, we can't get him in school, because they say he's not vaccinated, although he is. And we can't get him into a clinic, because the clinic won't take him, and so you work that stuff out. This kind of stuff happens all the time. And the, this uh, verse from Luke's Gospel, when John the Baptist outs people for being a brood of vipers, which I really resonate with. And then the question of those amongst the vipers who are still sensitive and their hearts haven't been trashed. So what then must we do? And so you become friends with the kid from Honduras. You teach him to play blackjack so you can let him win. And you listen to his story. I mean, it's, it's my little thing, but it's my fortunate moment to be part of the transcendental a part of the categorical presence of that transcendental love. Before I talk about what's going on here, I want to talk about the two communities that are here. There's the community of the Rio Grande Valley, which is a lovely, lovely place. So I just put the map up there, because sometimes we get a little bit confused. That's, that's us down here, uh, the tip of Texas. Browns used to say, on the border by the, by the sea was there a little Chamber of Commerce model, but then it's not so good to be able to border, and of course there's hurricanes. So they changed that, but here we are. It's a, it's a beautiful place to live. It's a, I, people say, well, Houston, Houston's international, and, and Dallas has all of its stuff. What's the valley like? And I said, the valley's like going to visit Grandma. It is. It's home. It's, it's a, it's a, in its own way, a safe place. It's really a community. Uh, it's a community in which, percentage-wise, there's fewer undocumented people than in, in Houston. The difference being, though, it's a small place. Nobody comes from Central America, other parts of Mexico, to live in the Rio Grande Valley, because there's no work here, really. You come here because your family's here. And you stay here because just down the road in, in Victoria is where your grandmother is. But what happens over time, whatever the federal government's doing, your grandma comes to visit from Victoria. She gets a tourist visa. She comes in and you're like, oh my God, she's got dementia. We're not sending her back to the ranch. She's just going to stay with us. She overstays her visa. She becomes illegal. But she's still part of the family. So that's, that's life here. Everybody knows somebody. If they deport grandmother, they're not just report, deporting that woman's mother, but it's also our neighbor. It's the lady outside at school. It's the one you see every day you walk around because we talk to each other. So deportation here is like a nuclear bomb. It's an extraordinarily awful experience that has all kinds of collateral damage. Come back to why that's important. The other thing you need to know is there's only two ways out of here. There's two highways and there's checkpoints about 75 miles up the road. It is like you're going into another country. You do not get past that. So the expression the kids have for the valley is la jaula, the cage. Why is that a problem? Well, there's many, many reasons. I'll just give you one. We have no public hospital. So if you have a hernia and you're 35 and you're in the process of getting your paper straightened out, so you're technically illegal or unauthorized or something, you can't leave the valley maybe to go to Houston or to Galveston to get into a public hospital. What do you do? You wait until it strangulates. Hopefully someone drives you to the emergency room. It, and I'm not exaggerating. This happens all the time. It's a part of life here. 
medical care, where's some of it, some of the best medical care found, apart from the emergency room, which is silly. It's in the flea market on Saturday. They go down there. They know somebody who knows a little, who thinks they know somebody. That's the perception. That's the place we live in. But it's gotten much worse over the years. Um, this community is Texas. This is our community. Um, we paid into the coffers of the Department of Public Safety $2.4 billion over the last three legislative sessions so that they could come down to the border. And what is it that they do? Let me show you. sweetheart, polite, respects authority. The DPS agent, who knows where he's from, says, oh yeah, how are you doing? She's a citizen. Is that your little girl? Yes, it is. Is that the father? Oh, yes, it is. Oh, that's good. Is he a good dad? Yeah, he is. Are y'all married? Well, we're working on that. We're doing that. And does he have papers? And she says, well, no, we're working on that too. And then he calls Border Patrol. So, a nuclear bomb. That life is going to... The video itself goes over an hour and a half. And about 45 minutes into it, she's standing between the two cars, and she just starts throwing up. Her life's over. Second video, also from Brownsville. This is Church. The guy, uh, they pull over this guy who plays in the choir for one of the Catholic. He plays in two parishes, and the priest went on too long, and so he's speeding down the road, and he gets pulled over. Mi nombre es Alan Reyes, tengo 17 años, vivo aquí en Brownsville, Texas. Voy a la, estoy estudiando en la escuela High School López. Pues yo aquí llegué en el 2014 con mis papás y aquí estuvimos viviendo hasta, hasta el 2017 este año. Ese día fue un día en domingo. Yo estaba en mi casa y en eso me marcó mi mamá que, que nos había. ¿Qué dijo tu mamá? Me marcó y me dijo que nos habían parado la policía, que si pudiera acercarme para que agarrara a mi hermanito. We need a license driver. We need a license driver. Hello. Dile que si no, 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 que
So what then must we do? This this is already here. This has been going on for a long time, a lot longer than what came to the national attention with uh, the federal government's um, separation of children and essentially what they finally admit now freely without any kind of embarrassment is a way to deter people from coming to the border. Um, so today you saw the other community that's here and in a very different circumstance. If you'd come here a month ago and we'd gone just a couple of blocks, I guess that way, you go into the Catholic Charities Respite Center, there would have been 800 people who are here today and gone tomorrow. They go all over the country. You could have had a really, really interesting conversation with them. You would have learned all kind, their hopes, their dreams. Inside of a month, that's changed as they send them back into Mexico and make them wait in the, in the circumstances that you saw. Um, I, what you didn't see was just how very dangerous Matamoros is right now for everybody. The, the, the cartels are breaking down. I don't, we're not really sure what, but there was a priest stabbed to death last week. There was a guy in Laredo, which is part of that same area, who was a pastor who ran a shelter. Cartel people came up. They wanted to take away three Cubans because they were going to kidnap them, and he wouldn't let them in. And then he's, he's been disappeared for three weeks. They've not... The cartel people, organized crime, has not fooled with the churches until recently. So something's happening. And, and so the vulnerable people, and as, uh, as a colleague has said so very well, every single one of those people you saw at that bridge today is walking around with a dollar sign on their forehead. Because some they're coming to this country because they have family here. Most of them. So someone out there loves them. And maybe that someone is a maid in Rockport and can't make more than a you know a couple hundred bucks a week, but by God, she'll find the three thousand dollars to pay that ransom, and they know that. So they are extraordinarily, extraordinarily vulnerable. So we look at that. We live, we who live here and work with kids or work with live in a community where the where the DPS is breaking families up all the time. We we tend to kind of sit back and wonder now what on earth can we do about this. And what was so very interesting was the responses that blew up in a beautiful way starting in May and June and July of last year. The creativity just came out of all over the place. But I, I will say first amongst the community here, you, you saw Elisa who was standing on the light pole there right by the bridge. Yeah. Elisa, she fixes houses, she's got a family, and then some, she knew a woman that worked at the Greyhound station who said, you know you need to come down here the Brownsville bus station closes at 11, and they just dropped off three 18-year-old girls, and they're going to be out in the street. So Lisa, like everybody else, is very interesting. She said, I strapped on my gun <laughs> yeah, and went down there, and, and, and then she's really good. She said, I got the three women and said, you know what? You can come with me. You'll be safe at my house. If you don't want to, because you don't know me, I'll just sit here with you all night long. You know, and then she got involved. And another group heard that people were being left on the bridges uh, south of McAllen in Hidalgo. And then this group sprung up. It's like seven or eight or nine of them. The angry Tias, they call them. The pissed off ants. <laughs> One response. The other response, Team Browns. But then just across the bow, this constant, extraordinary generosity and creativity responding to this, this need. It's the... It's the, the Categorical love of God coming home. Um, and then, but it's happening all over. I mean, it's just, this is the thing. This is like government, 
government-sized crisis that's been created. So we go to court. Uh, I explained a little bit earlier how ports and courts started. We went down there because we wanted to see what's happening. And this is what you see. The courts are packed out. In the McAllen Court, there can be 140 people chained in for a misdemeanor. They crossed into the country illegally. To remind you what that means, you cannot cross into the country by going through the bridge. There is not a legal way in because they don't let you. Although you have an international and our own laws allow any asylum applicant to come in any way they can. They can come parachute in, they can fly in, any way they get foot in the United States they didn't have a right to have their asylum application processed. So the federal government says, no, not really, not anymore, we're stopping this. And so they don't even try anymore across the bridge, they swim the river. And here's what happens, this is so interesting, we talk, we talk to them all the time. We did 200 uh, intakes in a couple of weeks in, um, in June basically to, to explain what was going on in the, in the Border Patrol de, de, detention facilities. I'm talking to all those people. I said, well, so how does that happen? Well, they bring us to the river, and then we go across the river on an inner tube or however they get across. And then our guide, the smuggler, says, now, once you're on the other side of the river, just keep walking till you get to this thing called the border wall. Sit down there and wait. And then the Border Patrol will come along and you surrender to them. So Trump's border wall does not slow immigration. It's a lighthouse. It's home plate. Because all of these people want to be in the system. And they tell you that. They said, I am tired of hiding and running. We come here because we trust you. I'm here because this is a way for my family to, to be safe once again. So, how weird, right? The border wall. This is where we go and, and they just wait and then the border patrol comes to you. And if you talk to, if you ever got a chance to talk to the local border patrol agents, they will tell you, the station chief that says this all the time, he says, we are the busiest sector in the country. So, well, okay, compared to what? Well, right now, yeah, yeah, you are the busiest, there are people coming through it. It is, it is hundreds of thousands. Although in 2001, it was one and a half million men on their way to Atlanta or Dallas, a place to roof for six months. And then they go back to Mexico. And when they crossed, they did not want to get caught by the Border Patrol. So compared to 2001, you guys have nothing going on. If you look at their numbers, the average number that an agent of people that an agent apprehends is one and a half a month. In the, in the Rio Grande Valley sector, every agent will pick up about a person and a half. They're not chasing them down in the weeds. They're not tackling them. They're picking them up because they surrender to them. And so the things changed. Because in 2001, people were trying to escape. There were men. There were, you know, scary maybe. Although if you own a contracting company, not so much. Now it's family units. And they're surrendering. And the Border Patrol will say, we're not trained to do this. This is why all the abuse is happening. Because we're not trained to do this. And so it's crying out for a change to recognize what's going on. So in any case, they're in court. I just want to do this one because I love this one. This is Molly Crabapple, who, who is a writer, and she did this piece um, for the Rolling Stone. So she drew this up. This is an adult court. And then the next day, she went into the Children's Immigration Court, and there was this big sign saying, you are not allowed to draw without six months' written notice. And so they followed her into court. You really can't see this, but I'll send a little bit. And so she, she took notes. The thing that's incredibly powerful about this is that you actually read 
with the note saying, two young people can, can't, not present, only speak Kiche, and there's no Kiche translate. It just goes through this whole thing. So there was all of these, these responses going on. Um, I want to do, I'll come back to this one. So, a thing that bothers all of us is the way that the, that the immigrants are, are portrayed in, in the media, the way perhaps we see them. Um, and it's a crush of people, we're being invaded, it's, they're problematic. And even at, uh, I, think, I think Elisa said this, and Gladys made a reference to it earlier when she was talking, like, oh my God, they're in such horrible shape, they're so depressed, they're in such bad, bad condition. And if we focus on that, if we lose the piece of hope that's there, or the joy that they also experience, believe it or not, they really do become dehumanized. There is a piece that's taken away from them. Um, it is a horrible situation. It's a terrible situation. Um, you, did, you may not have heard Elisa saying for the first time in a year, people ask her for condoms because rape is there and it's on demand. And so the women are like, you know, we, can't, we just can't do that. It's a horrible situation. And yet when you sit and talk with them, there's also this other thing. They still have this hope happening. This, there's something going on, and I, don't, I think I heard from some of you, you, you spoke with them today, what did they tell you? Are you coming back? You know, can y'all change things? I hope so. And they're still there. You know, they're still there waiting. Um, Noam Chomsky, who I do not pretend to understand at all, really, but he, he had this long essay when he was talking about the threats to civilization. So it's the atomic bomb that it's climate change. And he said, and a really big one, and a really important one that we don't talk about, is neoliberalism. And then he, he quotes Margaret Thatcher saying, yo, in the end, we're all just potatoes in a sack. There's nothing we can do together. And he says, of course, that's not true. And we've managed to hold back some way, I think with the grace of God, certainly, but also amongst ourselves, the bomb. We're worried as hell, finally, although it may be way too late, about climate change. And then you look at this thing going on right here on the board. So this is one example of all the sins going on in our modern times. But this is very much our thing. And you see the response of the community. One of the poorest communities in the United States for more than a year, every day someone shows up at that bridge, crosses that bridge. You went through that heat. You know it's not a walk in the park. And they bring them their tacos. And they bring them their, their sometimes peanut butter jelly sandwiches. And they listen to them. And they talk to them. And so it's an extraordinary example, I think, in our midst uh, about the hope that's, that's here with us. I want to do one more story and then one more little reflection. So this is me with my sister and my dad and a woman in the middle, Hilberta. She came to the United States six years ago asking for asylum. She had witnessed... A massacre of her, her little pueblo in Guatemala uh, in the 90s. And then testified, because she was the oldest, she was only six, she remembered who it was. She testified against the man who, who was there supervising the murder of women and children and, and the other men. And so she, she survived that, she escaped, she served as a witness, she went to trial, and then her life was it put at risk. And she left her, her three kids with her sister hidden away somewhere, and they came north. She came north, she applied for asylum, and she was put in jail for two years. In common jail. So she's with, with 
violent criminals, but this is, you know, you have to wait. Um, her case was denied and then appealed, but the day of the denial, the attorney who was working with her called me and said, well, yeah, we really need to talk. So I brought her, she was staying with my wife and I. Um, so I brought her down and she said, um, your case was denied. And so she starts crying. This is two years and she's, what am I going to do? She says, you can run because you have papers that allow you to travel. As long as they don't go into the computer, you can, you can get out. And it was, I remember it was a Tuesday before Thanksgiving. I said, well, we're driving to Dallas tomorrow. You can come with us if you want. And so she got in the car and we drove up and there's this long line. So the whole thing was, she needs to be relaxed when she gets to the Border Patrol guy. Because he says, you know, show me your papers. And she freaks out, they're going to go into the computer. So we're there and we're getting, and she's getting, she's getting more and more nervous. And so I start telling her jokes, but the only jokes I can remember were like these really dirty jokes. <laughs> They're really funny, and she's laughing. My wife's like, what are you, you know, what do you do? And we get through. The guy just looks at her papers, and, and off she goes. And then she makes it to Alabama. I was like, well, why do you want to go to Alabama? She said, well, I'm going to this town called Opelika. Well, I, I'm from Alabama. I was like, Opelika? Opelika is such a bad city that the state of Alabama, which is a really bad state, has de-city-fied it three times because they don't get water or sewer. And you want to go there? She says, that's where our community is. So it's in the middle of redneck land, but there are people who look out for each other. Um, so I think the lesson in it is there's, there's so much that these, this community brings to our community. And I think we, have, we are failing as a state. Like, so the ACLU's got like 19 different legal actions going on. Nothing's going to happen until October. We can't do anything in the state of Texas because it ends up in the 5th District. The 5th District thinks it's wonderful to lock up kids. It all has to go through California, so it's all very slow, slow way. So the ACLU is doing our part. But the electeds are still afraid. The elected officials are still cautious. You know, it's kind of like gun violence. We can't really talk about that, although El Paso. Who's left? Well, you heard Elisa say it maybe at the end of her little talk today. She says, this is America. We do this. Part of America is this. It's the conscience. And we know that the people in churches aren't the only conscience around. And we know that some of us have really badly formed consciences and some really strange consciences as well. But still, it is a point of gathering in our, in our republic where we can influence the way we think, the way we feel, and then what we do about it. What then must we do? And there are very specific concrete actions even back in the time of John the Baptist. So it's not about sharing your cloak with somebody. If you've got two, you share with one who doesn't have one. It's not about treating people, paying them right so much. For us, now, in this circumstance, responding to this very specific moment, you go to your elected. And you say, enough of that. I don't know if you remember what happened when that voice got out of that girl crying, the little kids crying. Trump backed down. If you knew who that person was that leaked that tape, this person was extraordinarily vulnerable. This person is not from the United States, was a, was a, a foreign national working in the United States. If, if they found out who she, who she or he was, that's it. And yet, this person could not stand that. And so put their career, their safety, their, their well-being 
because they need to do that. It, it stopped Trump. He didn't get any better, but it stopped that. This is one person. But what, what did that tape do? You cannot listen to that and not be moved. Um, so, so I think it, that's, it's the, it, it really is a moment of a call to action. It's our moment. There's many, many things going on. We, could go, we just finished a week of uh, retreat planning with the ACLU of Texas. I was like, oh my God, it's the prison thing. It's the guns. It's, it's the economic inequity. All that kind of stuff. But in a very specific way for, a, for, a, for people of the book, this to me is an undeniable call to action. And, and it's hard to say this, but I, find it, I would find it shameful if we can't find the courage and the creativity to, to do something about it in this moment. And here's the hopeful thing, and there is hope. The electeds in Texas are nervous. Mm -hmm. And I love having nervous officials. <laughs> There's one thing they do very well. They count. And if the United Methodist Church of Dallas shows up, I can guarantee you, you're going to get a lot more attention than if we come from the valley. So I, I thank you for coming down. This is a hard trip. Uh, yeah, your bus didn't have air conditioning. <laughs> and there was no air conditioning on the bridge. And then you were with people who were in these impossible situations, and they looked at you with hope. That's hard. Um, but you know what? we got stuff we could do with that. And I, I really do believe we can flip this and turn this, because this, this is America. I will stop the last piece. So, and I, God, this is, I hate doing this, but so Nepantla is a, is a concept about the in-between place. So it's, um, I can't remember the theological term. It's when you're walking through the door. Somebody knows this. Liminal, thank you very much. So it's like, you know, you become a teenager. It's right before you say, I do, or I don't. <laughs> you're going through, going from one room to another. It's that in-between place. That's the border. And the wonderful thing about liminal moments is it's just so ripe with life. Um, I think there's or liminal places all over our republic, all over our lives, and our churches, our daily lives. But this is a really, really interesting one. Because the odds are not in the favor of those people you saw on that other side of the bridge. They really are the weak and the vulnerable. And they need a helping hand. And they have the courage to ask it. One last thing, just because I love this story. Um, there's a lovely, lovely woman. She was, Samantha B. did a piece called The New Ellis Island. And again, if you email me, I'll send all the links. And so she did a piece over here at the McAllen bus station. And there's a, a young woman, a younger woman, who's been helping out part of the Angry Tea. It's just lovely. <coughs> and she grew up here in the valley, but she doesn't really speak Spanish all that well. And so her, but she still orients people, so she'll say, like, you know, um, when you get to San Antonio, you have this piece of paper. You ask because you're going to change your bus. You know, and then you're going to Chicago, where you're going. And when you get to Nashville, you're going to change your bus. So she'd say this several times. So finally this little girl one day comes up to her, and the girl's like seven, and she says, Miss, in Spanish, are you going to be here in an hour? And she's, yeah, sure. Are you going to be here in two hours? Yeah, yeah. Are you going to be here after lunch? She said, yeah. And tomorrow? Yes, why are you asking me that? I think you should take the trouble to learn how to pronounce bus. So the great thing about that story is, is it worth my trouble correcting this woman or not? Is she going to be here for me or not? Are we going to be here for them or not? That's it.
questions. So thank you, and God bless. The Brownsville native and former Catholic priest, Michael Seifert, gave his presentation at the First Presbyterian Church in McAllen, where Rio Grande Guardian was there.